Hey there, global listeners. If you're loving the insights we're bringing you on This Week Explained, it's time to turn this into a movement. How? Easy. Share the wisdom. Tell your friends, family, and colleagues about us. Let's make geopolitics a dinner table conversation around the world. Also, subscribe wherever you listen. Be the first to get the scoop on our latest episodes. The more subscribers we have, the louder our voice in the world of geopolitics. As well, please rate and review. Your opinion does matter to us. It's not just feedback. It's the fuel that propels us to the top, helping others discover our global community. This is not just a podcast. It's a movement. Subscribe, share, rate, and review, because together we're rewriting the narrative of global affairs. Finally, keep those ears tuned in. We've got more amazing episodes coming your way every Friday on This Week Explained. Stay informed, stay involved, and stay safe out there. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. You are now listening to This Week Explained. and welcome to This Week Explained, the independent geopolitical podcast that tackles all the major global events. We're glad that you're here with us as we bring you all the insights and analysis on what's happening around the world. As always, I'm Tiana with Curvin as my co-host, and together we'll help you understand the complexities of our dynamic, ever-changing world. This week we had a bit of a surprise episode drop because the Mike Baker interview that was scheduled to be released on December 3rd was released on Tuesday or Wednesday? Yeah, Tuesday. Okay, well, let's play a clip and then you can get into why it was decided we would release the episode when we did. Yeah, and I'll, I'll play the clip, but I always get told by you, Tia, please frame these clips so people know what the person's talking about. Yes. That's going to be especially true for this clip. So we got into a discussion on the Russia-Ukraine peace talks and... You know, what would be the aftermath of that? And I posed the question to Mike that it, it I'm thinking they get the peace deal, they reconsolidate forces, and then, you know, Putin gets what he wants, and then after that makes a push into Kiev later. And so this is Mike Baker's response uh, to that question. He's a semi-rational player. I mean, I think there's... He's he's gotten his way, and and you know I'm not I can't speak to his uh, mental stability from day to day, but I think he's a rational player at this point. I don't think he sees Kiev as a as a as an end point. I don't think he sees Kiev as some something he can do anymore. Um, he's lost too much um, in the way of of uh, command and control. You know, a lot of their leadership structure is shot. You know, he's fired, or some of them have been killed, and resources. You know, always he's having to go hand and you know or hat in hand to Iran and in North Korea. That probably pisses him off every day. Yeah, so real quick, uh, so that <laughs> episode was released early uh, just because the whole episode was focused entirely. Topical. Yeah, very, very topical. topical, and it would be outdated if we waited for our yeah, original and, release date. <laughs> and you know, I mean, you, Tiana, and I respect Mike 
a lot and I don't want to do a disservice to the stuff he's talking about. Right. By putting it out a month, you know, two weeks behind. Yeah, I think it was important for us to drop it. And plus, it also kind of padded our, you know, our listeners because we know how sad they were that this wasn't released today. Our yes. Normal episodes not released today. It was obviously pushed until Saturday because Saturday. Thanksgiving. Uh, yep, we had a uh, a thanks an Osage Thanksgiving feast from Tiana. That's mm-hmm. what we did on Thursday, our normal recording day. So now we're here on Friday recording after that. Right. So let's let's get to it. We've held off long enough. Okay. So what's on the agenda this week, Kervin? All right. Obviously, Russia, Ukraine, and then Israel, Hamas. Those are the two major conflicts going on right now. We're going to get into a lot of election talk this week. Um, so I've seen some reporting internally that the Kremlin is worried about the 2024 election. Uh we're going to get into that. Uh, so it's not that Putin isn't going to be reelected and he hasn't even put his name in the hat yet. He's going to do that real soon. Um, but we'll get into Has what they'll... anyone put their name in the hat. Yeah, there's a there's a few and there's some crazies. <laughs> some, uh, I would say crazies just because, you know, they're full on Russian opposition. So there are people in prison that have put their names in. Oh, the right. Hat and OK. That's what I mean when I when I say that kind of stuff. They have no chance, but. This is sort of like a political statement. Well, that was like <laughs> that porn star who tried. What Mary Carey didn't she try to run for president one year? In the for the or uh, the when the Democrat when they were doing the, the Democratic. President? Yeah, I don't know. I was like, many people have put yeah their names in for election. Yeah, that so, you're like what? Well, Donald Trump was one of them. I'm gonna say that <laughs> from my perspective. I, I was very so. confused. A lot of people's <laughs> perspectives in 2015, when he first put in, um, mm-hmm. the perspective was, well, this is just a reality TV star trying to make a name for himself. And, right. And that, that changed, you know, and and people have opinions oh. on whether it was better or worse. And we're not, yeah. we won't get into that, but we will get into right. how the, oh goodness, the Houthis in Yemen mm-hmm. are trying to kick off a regional conflict. Uh, and Nice. Then we will talk about the successful launch of North Korea's spy satellite, hmm. maybe, maybe with some help mm-hmm. from other countries. Mm-hmm. Well, end it. I said we're going to talk a lot about elections. Uh, there were there were quite a few recent elections over the last few months that we talk in from your and I perspective as a U.S. worldview perspective, right? That we're so polarized. That's something Andrew Yang spoke about. That we yes. are so polarized completely the opposite ends uh, but this isn't a u.s issue it's a global issue and, and there's some elections that came out uh recently that shows that and i wanted to talk about that and what it does for geopolitics okay well let's jump right in with the update on russia's war in ukraine so last week um the word was stalemate remember and uh, we have not moved past that point yet so we're still at a stalemate avdivka is still under intense assault by Russian forces. Um, now, despite some reduction in attacks, and Ukrainian forces did repel 30 separate attacks uh, in and around that town this week, there are concerns about a potential third wave of assault as Russian forces regroup and wait for better weather conditions. Well, recently, Russian President Vladimir Putin blamed Ukraine for the lack of peace talks, because of course it's not their fault. 
So how significant is this statement and what do you think it signals? Yeah, now, now Putin's comments are not new. He said this since he invaded Ukraine. He said, well, why won't Zelensky come to the table for peace talks? Um, but at this point in the conflict, they are very significant. The the fact that he hasn't changed his stance on that. Um, now, this is, this is a familiar tactic is blaming Ukraine uh, while he expresses his own willingness to negotiate. Mm-hmm. Now, the, the, the purpose that it serves is to exert pressure on the West. Um, so they're trying to put, so Putin's trying to put pressure on the West to put pressure on Ukraine to get mm-hmm. back to the negotiating table. Right. Now, it's, it's crucial to recognize that Russia maintains its core objectives and that's including those territorial gains that had happened that happened recently or in the so last. They're not years. actually trying to no. negotiate. They just want Ukraine to be like, all right, fine, you can have everything that you annexed illegally. You can have. Yeah, and and he's focusing now on Ukraine, and he's not talking about Zelensky because he wants a regime change. Oh, and that was so. That was the push into Kiev. Is Putin wanted to change the regime to be a more pro-Russian regime? Of course. Um, so this is his new way of, hey, we don't even have to fight to get the capital. Just oust Zelensky. Correct. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I love it when people like shoot for the stars. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, so I know this moves a bit away from Ukraine, but I wanted to talk about Finland's decision to close most border crossings with Russia to halt asylum seekers. Mm-hmm. What is the backstory there, and how does Russia respond to the accusation of encouraging migration? All right, so I'll start with the backstory. I'm not sure everyone who listens understands this. Finland joined NATO for this very reason. They want protection from Russia. Right. Now, this time, Finland's move is a response to an alleged influx of asylum seekers uh, with the claim that Russia is actively encouraging this migration across the Finnish border. To get like pro-Russian people yes. in Finland? Yeah, and to kind of destabilize the the Finnish economy, the government. Okay. Um, all of that, all of that's at play. Now, on this podcast, we do bring both sides of the story. Um, okay. So even when I don't agree with it, which is that <laughs> Moscow denies the accusation. Right. Uh, they're saying they're not doing that. But you know, whether it's true or not, Finland closed their borders. So it adds another layer of tension between Russia and all of its neighbors. So it's part of a broader geopolitical context. That's why it's important to to talk about this. And this context involves migration and border control. So surprise, surprise, border security, that's not just a U.S. issue. Well, turning to the Collective Security Treaty Organization Summit, um, where Putin mentioned Operation Mercenary. Can you mm-hmm. elaborate on what this operation entails and its significance? Yes, Operation Mercenary is a counterterrorism effort by the CSTO aimed at preventing citizens of member states from joining unspecified terrorist organizations. Um, that seems good on paper. Now, Putin has highlighted its effectiveness at their recent summit in Minsk. In Minsk, and um, the the most important, I'll say, the most important aspect of the summit. Uh, was actually not really the Operation Mercenary, but it was the absence of Armenian Prime Minister. And this goes back to those strained relations between Moscow, and now it's a strained relation between Moscow um, and the Prime Minister of Armenia. And that's after the events that we talked about in Nagorno-Karabakh, the, the conflict there. 
Okay, well, how does Russia interpret this absence of Armenia's prime minister at the CSTO summit? Well, they label it as an anti-Russian move, and they said it was orchestrated by the West. Of course. Everything is the West's fault. Um, Mm -hmm. So that we're just layer upon layer of complex dynamics. And and now this one within their own organization that they uh, have, have stood up. And then it just really impacts the broader geopolitical landscape. Wow. So while the war in Ukraine may be at a stalemate, there's still a lot going on, especially with Russia. Yeah. Shifting our focus to the Israel-Hamas conflict, we've seen a temporary truce after seven weeks of intense fighting. Can you break down what led to this ceasefire and what it means to the people on the ground? Absolutely. And that's that's what we want to want to talk about the people on the ground um, who are affected by this and have lost their homes because of of what's going on there. So um, this temporary truce should come as a relief, hopefully. Um, Hopefully it can be extended. But the the truce comes as a result of negotiations involving the planned release of Israeli hostages held by Hamas in exchange for jailed Palestinians. So it's a four day ceasefire. Hopefully we can get that extended as more agreements for hostage releases and things mm-hmm. like that happen. Um, and in that ceasefire, there will be no major bombings, artillery strikes, or rocket attacks. Both sides, though, have and they will continue to accuse the other of sporadic shootings and other violations of the ceasefire. Um, mm-hmm. And and so that just shows that full-scale hostilities, I, I hope we extend the ceasefire, but they're going to resume once this truce is over, most likely. Well, the situation on the ground obviously seems very dire with families attempting to return to homes that have been heavily affected. If if they have a home, they're still at all, honestly. I would say the majority probably do not have a home to go back to. Which... Devastating. Gutting in the worst way. Okay, so can you... Give us an update on the conditions in Gaza during this temporary pause in hostilities. So in in areas like uh, one of the the more talked about, the Khan Yunus uh, area in southern Gaza, people are cautiously venturing out of the shelters, um, but they're they're venturing out of those shelters amidst a landscape of rubble. So displaced families are hoping for a temporary return to homes they abandoned earlier in the conflict. They're hoping that those homes are still there, uh, that the ceasefire does provide a momentary relief. Um, and I can tell you as, as somebody who's been through bombardments and, and rocket attacks and stuff like that, if you go a few days without hearing rocket attacks, that does improve your mental health and instability a lot. I can say that. Oh my goodness! I but can't fathom. It's man, the war is as hell. I mean, it's the most true statement, and that's why we are an anti-war couple. I, yeah, I would so, rather see peace than war. Yes, yeah. um, you said the ceasefire involves the release of hostages held by both sides. So, can you shed light on the terms of this agreement and what the potential implications could be? Yes, yeah, so the, the ceasefire includes the release of 50 women and children hostages that were held by Hamas in exchange for 150 Palestinian women and teenagers held in Israeli jails. Um, so the first group of hostages and Palestinian prisoners was 
expect it to be released uh, today on Friday that we're recording it. Right. Um, I have not, I unfortunately have not had a chance today to uh, to scrub through all of the news to, to figure out the exact numbers. But right. um, Israel has indicated the possibility of extending the ceasefire if more hostages are freed at, and they want them freed at a rate of at least 10 per day. She can't just willy-nilly just send out 250 people at one time. Uh, that's just a nightmare. Um, we There are some reports that do suggest that up to 100 hostages could ultimately be released in this four-day ceasefire, though. Yeah, I was about to ask if they mean like 100 beyond the four-day ceasefire or... Yeah, it's it's more of like... So, like I said, you know, 10 per day, right? We're going to get to 10 per day. Well, you four-day ceasefire, that gets you to 40, right? Yeah. So if, if Hamas agrees and Israel agrees to keep releasing in an agreement, the ceasefire can continue day by day, but it's going to be a day by day um, extension to it. We're not just going to see a peace deal done just because right. of the brutality on both sides. Exactly. So beyond the hostage release, what other aspects of the conflict are being addressed during this temporary truce? So additional aid is set to flow into Gaza. They want to address the severe humanitarian crisis caused by those weeks of Israeli bombardment. Mm-hmm. Um, so the ceasefire provides a window for aid delivery. We've got trucks entering from Egypt at the southern end of Gaza to get into those areas to provide aid. Um, mm-hmm. It is important to note that Hamas emphasized that this is a temporary truce. Of course. And so that's why I was saying we're probably going to see a resumption of hostilities uh, once this period concludes. Hopefully we can extend it more. Yeah. Well, shifting our attention to the political landscape in Russia, it seems that there's growing concern within the Kremlin regarding the upcoming March 2024 presidential elections. That's very soon. I didn't realize it was being held in March Yeah. until now. Um, Russian President Vladimir Putin, during a recent meeting with election commission representatives, emphasized the government's commitment to suppress any foreign or domestic interference in the electoral process. I'm sorry. I'm Try to get laughing. through that without laughing. <laughs> okay. Coming from a leader that interferes with... Who uh, loves to interfere yeah. in foreign and domestic electoral processes. As we sit <laughs> in a city that... In a region that loves to interfere in... Love to interfere. Okay, so... International... <laughs> An international and domestic electoral process. Yeah, that too. Uh, So that's another podcast. Yeah. So (laughs) what's driving this seemingly heightened level of concern? Yeah. So the the Kremlin's concern, I think, is very interesting because it has nothing to do with Putin being elected. Mm -hmm. Um, And considering the widespread approval that Putin enjoys, he's got eighty-two percent approval. According to the uh, Levada Center, they did a poll in o- October of this year. But they um, punish people who right, don't but, support him, who openly. Well, he did have so before the war, uh, which before war? The, the before the war in Ukraine. I'm sorry, uh, I'm so confused. Uh, yeah. There's just so many things. Okay, so I, not even the the war because we talk about the war in Ukraine. You're talking about 2014, but the invasion of in 20. Um, yeah, the recent invasion of Ukraine by Russia. Okay. Before that, 
Putin had a 65% approval rating among Russians. It's fairly mm-hmm. high for a president. Um, yeah. When was the last time an American president had 60 pr- I don't want to, I don't want to, no, we're not going on It that. was George W. Bush after uh, the <laughs> attacks after on 9-11. 9/11. Yep. Aye. And so uh, right now he's got 82%. So that is substantial. That is astronomically high. Right. Now, they're pro- the Kremlin's concern is that there are recent statements and actions from key figures within the Russian government, which indicate a substantial anxiety about internal meddling and the need to, they want to secure Putin's continue to support. And what I'm trying to say there is Putin's got to win by a lot in yeah. order for this to look like a legitimate victory. Right. And prove that actually what he's doing is what the Russian people right. want, right? Yes. Okay. And it goes so re- back to you saying, right? You're like, well, they have to agree that they love Putin because they have a gun to their head. So it would be 82% support. So it kind of shows some fractures in how they're doing the polling. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, recent polls have shed light on public sentiment regarding the war in Ukraine and peace negotiations. So how do these dynamics play into the Kremlin's concerns? Yeah, it's it's a real nuanced picture on that front. So roughly half of Russians support the war in Ukraine. Um, a significant portion, 55%, believe that peace negotiations should commence. So of those, um, you know, of those Russians who support the war, they also say, the majority of those say, we want peace negotiations to They're stop They're tired. It. Yes. Now, the Levada Center noted a slight increase in those favoring negotiations between a September poll and that October poll. Because they're more tired in October and September. Every month it'll probably go up like little ticks, little incremental increases. Right. So right right now Russia is grappling with the challenge of balancing un, you know, balancing popular support for the war with that growing call for negotiations, which is why Putin is now, you know, coming back publicly and saying, hey, come to the negotiating table. That's right. what the people of Russia want. So this could be a crucial factor in shaping the electoral narrative. Oh, okay. Well, it's interesting that there seems to be a paradox between the high approval ratings for Putin and then the apparent concerns yes. about the elections. So how can we reconcile these seemingly contradictory signals? Wow, that is the real question, right? You got to read between the lines to figure out what they're really worried about. Yeah. So while Putin maintains substantial support, the uh, what I mentioned earlier is the the Kremlin is aiming for an even more overwhelming victory in the upcoming elections. They want to show the world that the Russian people are fully behind Putin and his actions. Right, right. So the focus on potential internal meddling, censorship efforts, and and then addressing the concerns of specific social groups, such as like relatives of mobilized personnel. And Mm -hmm. so we know that in our own country, right? Relatives of of family members who were in Iraq and Afghanistan at the time who were killed or maimed for a war that a lot of people didn't think should have been happening. Right. We had a negative sentiment among some of those families. Or Vietnam or Korea or... Any number of conflicts that when we your have baby goes to in. war, you get pissed off about it. Yeah, it's right. rightfully so. Right now, all of that suggests a meticulous effort to ensure a smooth electoral process so that they can solidify Putin's standing in Russia. 
and on the world stage, honestly. Right. Oh, so yeah. He could be, so he could be like, ha-ha, I told you, I have all the support. This is what they wanted. Yeah, it's going to be key for them to show China as well. Right. That we so have you, full support. You mentioned the concern about the mobilized personnel and their relatives. So can you elaborate further on why this particular group is seen as a potential threat to Putin's unannounced presidential campaign? Right. So the the Kremlin obviously views the relatives of mobilized personnel, deployed military people as a social group that could pose a threat because there's a rising dissatisfaction after, you know, so long of, of being in this little limited, short um, mili- special, special military, special military operation. Yeah. And it's it's now going on over a year and a half and the without a peace negotiation and we're at a stalemate, it's going to reach the two-year point. That's something and it's that... about to be winter, so obviously any fighting that could occur, it's going to slow down Right, further. until the spring. Right, like it did last year. Exactly. So, yeah, we're, we're looking at the two-year mark coming up pretty soon. Um, Wild. So by addressing their concerns, prevent, potentially preventing protests um, through financial incentives, if you pay people... They they tend to be um, or threaten them. Yeah, well, <laughs> the the two things you can do: threaten with a, a gun to their head, or pay them a, right. a, a, a certain amount of money to keep them quiet. But so so by doing that, the government aims to mitigate any discontent, so that you know there's no dissuasion from Putin's actual support base. Well, get those 2024 calendars ready because it sure does seem like 2000 the 2024 global election cycle will impact every facet of geopolitics. So now let's get to the news from the Red Sea, where Yemen's Houthi rebels seized an Israeli-linked cargo ship, the Galaxy Leader, which flies the flag of the Bahamas. The rebels claim to have taken the ship due to its connection to Israel and vowed to target other ships linked to or owned by Israelis. This incident raises concerns about an escalation of tensions in the region, especially considering the ongoing conflict between Israel and Hamas. Absolutely. I guess that really wasn't a question. That's just something that you need to expand upon. Sorry. (laughs) No, you're good. No, it is. That wasn't a question, really. And I like statement questions, too. Um, I do that a lot. And then I'm like, where was the question? Yeah, where was I going with this? I'm not sure. But it does, yeah, I mean, it adds another layer of, of complexity to a volatile situation in the Middle East. Right. It's not helping matters, I would say. So the Houthi rebels' targeting of ships with Israeli connections reflects a concerning expansion of hostilities, and that goes beyond what Israel and Hamas are dealing with right now. So the Israeli government has condemned the seizure, obviously. Right, yeah. And they called it an Iranian act of terror. Yes. So how do you interpret the involvement of Iran in this maritime incident? Well, the fact of the matter is the Houthis are an Iranian-backed proxy organization. Right. Just like Hamas, just like Hezbollah, they take their orders from the IRGC, the ruling body of Iran. And that's what the Israeli government is getting at here. So the attacks on U.S. bases in Iraq, 
coupled with the Houthis hijacking cargo ships and flying drones and missiles at Israel, seems to be a part of a broader strategy by Iran to exert influence in the region through those proxies. Well, the ship's ownership details have been a point of contention. Like, while Israeli officials insist the ship is British-owned and Japanese-operated, public shipping Databases associate the ship's owners with Ray Car Carriers, which was founded by an Israeli billionaire. So what significance does this have in the context of the incident? Like, why can't we get our facts straight? Yeah, well, so we talked about this in the Mike Baker episode. I wish we could have gotten more from him on the situation because he's far like his whole company. He's the CEO of a, a diligence company that works ex- just on these factors right maritime shipping and who owns what Mm -hmm. Um, so he's far better at pouring over those financial records to identify where the ships are owned or who owns them i guess i should say so what he you listen to the episode he's he talks about how that could be old data that it was owned by an israeli billionaire but he doesn't know okay so they might have papers from two different time periods yeah and okay. maritime shipping is very sketchy. Um, you talked about how it flies the flag of the Bahamas. And right. We saw that, right? When we, we went on cruises for a while, there was a, a time frame of like five years where we went on about seven or eight cruises. <laughs> and they all, uh, we both noticed, they all flew like the, Bahami- the Bahamian flag. The Bahamian, flag. yeah. Yeah. And, and there's a reason for that. It's because they want to avoid the more stringent labor regulations that would apply if it was registered to the United States or other of countries. Of course. They want to be able to work all those people to the and bone. They do. They do. And they do. Um, we and, can say this as friends of people. <laughs> yeah. On cruise ships, they work you to the bone. And it's because of that. You know, they it's a bohemian flag so they have less rules and regulations about labor laws so Mm -hmm. just because they fly the flag it doesn't mean that that's where it's owned or that's where it's operated so now reason i say that is because if you say well look it's not owned by the israelis it has a bohemian flag that doesn't mean anything right so that that's not you can't just go by the flag it's flying right that's all just based off of laws and regulations of the country where they might dock it or something right and honestly, that's another Mike Baker thing. I don't know how long they have to, to dock it there or what kind of paperwork. Yeah, needs I, don't to be know, done. I don't know anything about maritime anything. But <laughs> look, look, the shipping industry is so nuanced. It's filled with a bunch of sketchy players, billionaires. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think we can get into everything. It, if Even if this episode went three hours, we couldn't discuss all of the maritime. I don't think I would want to have a three hour episode <laughs> where we discuss the intricacies fun. of maritime law. No, that sounds really boring to me. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you want it, you know, just hit us up. And, we'll, and Carvin will do it by and himself. I'll do, you, no one wants to hear that. I will <laughs> tell you that one. <laughs> Uh, but but what I will say is this. I think Iran is playing a dangerous game because one false move by one of their proxy organizations. They'll be directly tied to the conflicts that exactly. they're trying to instigate. And, and then gonna, that would be bad. <laughs> yeah, it's going to get them into a conflict that they are, I can tell you for sure, they are not ready to fight right now. Okay. Okay. Well, let's turn our attention to East Asia 
North Korea's recent successful launch of a surveillance satellite has stirred regional tensions and raised concerns globally. Let's start by discussing the implications of North Korea's satellite launch. What does it signify in terms of the country's technological advancements? And what do you think its impact will be on regional dynamics? Yeah, so that the it was the Malingyong-1 satellite a very significant development after the the two failed launches and it just showcases north korea's progress in missile technology now what is it just their progress oh i guess we can get into that a little bit later in the discussion okay okay because i don't know if it's just their progress (laughs) yeah of course um but it does yeah it, it does provide them with progress i guess is is what i would say um, now, we don't know the exact reconnaissance capabilities of the satellite, meaning me. I don't. I haven't seen. Um, and I haven't seen anything that's classified, nor would I say it on this podcast. Yeah, I did. you wouldn't have even brought it up. Yeah. Um, but it does indicate a potential advancement in their intercontinental ballistic missile capabilities, because uh, that's how they launched it. Mm-hmm. So this has escalated tensions in the region. Um, you know, they drew condemnation from almost all of the entire international community. Well, South Korea has obviously expressed suspicions of Russian assistance in North Korea's satellite program, which we actually discussed whenever they had their meeting that since North Korea was outfitting Russia with some, well, allegedly (laughs) giving North Korea some of their munitions that in return Russia would help them yeah, that... a satellite. So how does this impact the delicate relations between North and South Korea? I mean, obviously, it wasn't a positive development. Yeah, yeah and it's funny how we discuss things uh, that could be potential things to look for, and, and they happen a couple months later. It's like we know people. Right. It's, it's like, yeah. Uh, but these are still just allegations, so... We'll keep it at that. Okay, yeah. And the allegations of Russian assistance is what is really straining the relations between North and South Korea. Um, South Korea suspended partially a uh, 2018 agreement uh, that North and South Korea had for uh, for surveillance. And once they did suspend that, they resumed, South Korea resumed aerial surveillance activities to, to demonstrate it's a very serious situation, and so we're going to take it very seriously. Now, there are concerns that this could lead to a further deterioration of diplomatic ties between the two Koreas. Well, the launch has also drawn condemnation from the UN, the US, Japan. Yep. So what are the key concerns raised by these countries within the international community? Yeah, the, the international community... Like you said, express concerns. They express concerns about the destabilizing impact of North Korea's missile advancements. There are worries that the satellite launch could provide North Korea with enhanced surveillance capabilities, enabling monitoring of U.S. and South Korean forces. There were recent reports that the satellite had captured photos of the U.S. base in Guam. Um, so the use of satellite launches for military purposes actually goes against U.N. resolution. But, you know... Everyone does it. Every country launches satellites for military purposes. That's not the main purpose, but... Um, So there are suspicions that North Korea may have received assistance 
possibly from Russia, which mm-hmm. I've mentioned several times in the previous. Like, I just yeah. want to get to it. Okay, so supposedly Russia helped them develop the satellite. How does this add a geopolitical dimension to this situation? Yeah, and I want to say again, it's this is just um, an allegation. But if it's proven true, uh, it could indicate a strategic alignment between North Korea and Russia. Now, that's public. They already showed a strategic alignment, though. Now, this, that, yeah. So what I'm talking about here is that North Korea is ready to aid Russia in their war in Ukraine militarily. Mm -hmm. And the benefit of that is that Russia will aid North Korea in the off chance that Kim Jong-un decides we're going to get we're going to invade South Korea or we're going to attack Japan. Okay, so you mean like boots on the ground kind of. Okay. Yeah. So this is more of like a a strategic alignment. Now, what they're doing is this sort of this public display of, hey, we've I've got your back against the West. You've got our back against the West because they're the great evil and we need to take care of that. And it, it does have a it's impacting this balance of power in the region because most of it is focused and most of the region is focused well on China. But South Korea and Japan have their alliances with the U.S. and North Korea now wants to become a major player in those talks. So it, it raises questions about the broader diplomatic landscape because of North Korea's historical alignment with Russia and China. And so that's why it's a it's a big deal if Russia did help in uh, getting this satellite launched into space. So as we wrap up the episode, you said in the rundown that you wanted to talk about recent elections around the globe and how they show the polarization that's not just a U.S. or Western issue, but this polarization is occurring across the globe. Can you talk more about what is happening and then we can get into the implications plus the geopolitical implications and plus maybe where you see the 2024 elections going yeah the uh, multitude of elections that are coming for us in 2024 yeah and i I hope i can do this question justice we'll see see if i if we have enough time um you know i always say if we have enough time and yet i will ramble on for an hour and a half so time yeah our last (laughs) yeah our last few episodes have been so long I know, and and we're trying to keep this so that you can listen to it on your your drive, you know, to and from work or something like that. Yeah. Um, But I want to start with recent elections and how various countries are moving their political leanings, not, oh, all countries are moving one way or the other. It's actually showing, that's why I said it's showing how polarized we are. One country went from a right-wing government to a left-wing government. Another country did vice versa. Uh, what I'm not seeing is centrist candidates winning these elections. That's what right. makes me concerned. So I'll start in Spain, um, where the incumbent Socialist Party leader, Pedro Sanchez, held on to his his leadership. But that was because he obtained votes from Catalan separatists. This really divided the nation of Spain. It's going to be something that we're going to keep looking at going into uh, 2024, Already protests in the streets of Spain. Um, Spain went before before Pedro Sanchez was elected the last time. Um, Spain was seen as a more um, centrist or even heading right wing. Mm-hmm. And now they've gone with the Socialist Party leader. He has captured the votes of the Catalan separatists and 
people are up in arms. So they're, they're already protesting the streets of Spain, as I said. We're going to keep an eye on how, how Sanchez acts towards these protests. That's going to be really important to see. Does he squash it violently or does he allow you know people to publicly display their right to free speech? Okay, so what other elections have piqued your interest? All right, I'll give you one that's flying under the radar, I think. And then we'll get into the election that I think everybody's heard about and has the media just up in arms. Okay, that sounds good. What is flying under the radar, in your opinion? Yeah, I want to discuss elections in Netherlands. Uh, so far-right politician Gert Wilders uh, led his party to a decisive victory in the Netherlands general election. Um, uncertainty remains about whether he's going to be able to form a coalition because many parties previously vowed not to work with him. So what concerns do those parties have with Wilders? Well, they they see him as far right, obviously, uh, anti-Islam, pro-Russian. It's basically how Donald Trump is viewed by progressives in the United States and, and in other countries. They feel that he's going to remove funding from Ukraine, which will offer Putin a much needed win in that conflict. Well, as we know in politics, many people are branded something when in fact they govern much differently. So do you think he will govern the way these parties fear or will he become more centrist? Now, look, I always hope for a centrist governing body because you do have two different types of people. Right. Right. Your every country has different types of people with different types of beliefs. And so the way I feel is if you remain centrist, you can kind of govern see all both of those. Side, you can yeah. see both sides. Exactly. So that I, I do hope that that's what he does. And he focuses on what people actually need. But if we take him at his word, what you said, you know, what I what I said about him, he's far right, anti-Islam, pro-Russia. Those are the things that he will promote. Right. OK. He said he wants to remove funding for Ukraine, and um, he has toned down the rhetoric some, but he's played into the migration crisis that's happening in all over Europe. Um, he's promoting what he calls Nexit, just similar to Brexit in Britain. Mm-hmm. Um, he said he wants to secure the Dutch borders, and that has led to calls that he's anti-Islamic. Oh, okay. Well... Not to cut this short, but I wanted to get into the other election because we could certainly go down this rabbit hole that is migration and whether it's a crisis or not. Yeah. And that would take different opinions on that. Yeah. So what is that other election that you say upset the media so much? All right. Well, stop me if you've heard this one before, but there was an election in the Americas of a TV celebrity turned politician. And journalists around the world are worried. Have you heard that one before? I do remember that. Yeah, I do remember like that. Echoes of 2016, right? Right. But this isn't the United States. This is Argentina in 2023. Oh, wow. And this is libertarian candidate Javier Millet. He won the presidential election in Argentina basically because he ran on fixing an economy that has seen 40% of the population in poverty and saw inflation rise more than 140%. Oh, my gosh. And I think I saw the dumbest headline I have ever seen in my life. <laughs> and it said, you know, newly elected President Javier Mille will have to fix the economy of Argentina. Well, it's like, no, duh. 
Yeah. That's what presidents are elected to do. Keep the population safe and fix the economy. And flourishing. Like, right. You want it to flourish. We, we don't want trillions in debt. We, don't. <laughs> we just want a flourishing economy where we can all live together and not have a homeless crisis like we're having right now or, yeah. you know, every all the other crises that are going on. But yeah. This is very it's a very important election because Argentina is the second largest economy in South America. So if he can fix it, that should mean good things for the people of the country. Right. Right. I think the worry among like progressives is that he's going to succeed. And this is like progressives in in countries in South America. Um, he's going to succeed in fixing the economy. That's going to lead nearby countries like Brazil and Colombia to shift from their left wing leadership to more right wing. Um, and more candidates focused on actually fixing the economy. Now, listen, uh, I don't know much about Millet, and and so I wouldn't be a name. I wouldn't be a fan of him until I figured more out about who he really is. He's mm-hmm. got some wild ideas. Okay. He goes by the nickname El Loco, so the Madman. <laughs> that's right. a, I don't know. It's a presidential right, that's candidate. A, that's who you that's want. That's a that's a that's a start. <laughs> yeah. That's okay. not the nickname I'm gonna I'm gonna want if I'm running for president. Um, but he is working on severing ties with China, which, as everyone who's listening to us knows, we think that's a good idea right now. Um, if you're economically bound by China, that's a disaster. Wait, did you decide not to bring up him wanting to legalize organ selling? Oh yeah, um, sorry. <laughs> he yeah that that kind of like makes his nickname make sense right so that's a a slippery slope let me let me not bury the lead there or just gloss over it at all yeah completely he has called as tiana said for the legalization of organ selling um i don't think any of our listeners are on board with that i don't try like Slippery slope my friend the uptick of trafficking that would occur and the amount of poor and disadvantaged well, people that's, that would be and that's the problem right yeah you know uh yeah i'll talk off, off it would be an industry oh yeah okay so we won't I get into thought, it you needed to yeah. you needed to that needed to be brought it, up for sure it lends to why he's got this nickname a local yeah <laughs> a little a little idea a little snippet but on the good why. side, like I said, okay. I was trying yeah. to bury it with the good things, right? I'm trying to, right. to run his PR campaign, I guess. But no, you got to report both sides. I know. Got to do it. Okay. All right. I am, so I can stand or sit here and talk on this podcast and say I am not in favor of the legalization of public, you know, of privatizing organ selling, letting companies. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Private companies do that. But, you know. Listen, only time is going to tell how this completely changes the geopolitical landscape. What I do suggest is we let each of these people carry out their agenda as legally elected leaders of their countries. Right. You know, that's what the people voted for. And in time, we're going to find out who helped their country more. I can tell you this. The move between right and left wing policies among these countries tells me that none of these ideologies actually benefit the voting people. That's why it changes so much and the pendulum swings. So I I said it earlier in the podcast, I'd rather have more centrist ideas being played up. Uh, This Mike and I talked about this as well, being more centrist people and just 
can we get the crazies out of politics? And I don't it, think we're supposed to be using that word anymore, dude. Uh, I'm uh, okay. If if I said some names, you would probably say, agree well, that they're the. Well, what okay, are, can we get the ridiculous people out no, of politics? The extremists. Extremists. That's a better term. Out that's of a, it. That's the a more that lean, easy term. Yeah, that lean farther one way over the yeah. other, like that kind of thing. Yeah. Let's. Okay. Anyways, let's get people that have ideas that we can all agree on, like. Uh, I don't know. I think we can all agree on leaving people alone and still protecting them from violence. Not, I mean, not being I wish violent. we could all I wish we could all agree on that. But unfortunately, I I would say you and I in this and, and you and I agree in this, people <laughs> yeah. listening to this podcast agree. Hopefully, um, I think if you put a gun to someone's head and said, said hey, do you like this? They'd say, no, I don't. Um, so when it affects you personally, you will say, just protect me from violence. Fix the fix the damn economy, right? Mm-hmm. That's top. It's always top of the list for people. Um, and that even means cutting, you know, what would be identified as frivolous spending. We've gone into some of that. The shrimp on the treadmill. The shrimp on the treadmill. Some of these uh. grants that companies get to do just frivolous spending, I, I think, should be done. And then let's agree, can you and I stand here or sit here and agree to not invade or remove resources from sovereign nations? I think I agree. Yeah. I agree with that. <laughs> well, thank you for your TED Talk, Kervin. Is that all for this week? <laughs> I'll, put it, I'll put it in my stream, my, my role, my TED Talk role. Your TED Talk on different elections. On, on the extremes. I'll take out crazies and... Yeah, put extremists. Yeah, it's a work in progress. Um, um, well, but that's it for me, unless you wanted to add some things. Nope. We all just right. wanted to thank you all for listening to this humble little independent geopolitical podcast. We help, hope we hope that you found it informative and engaging. And if you have any feedback or suggestions for future episodes, please let us know. And if you would like in-depth coverage of these stories and more, follow us on Instagram at Oakland Analytics. Tiana, thank you so much. And until next week, stay safe out there.